0: Today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skincare. This spooky season, make sure you're only called Leatherface when you're in costume. Take your skincare to the next level with Romer. Based out of Chicago, Romer has a work-from-home skincare line with just three simple steps and all clean ingredients. No need to try and source it from unwitting victims. Romer covers all your skin needs. Right now, Romer Skincare is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code Listener15. That's code Listener15 on their website RomerSkincare.com. No stress, no clutter, no chainsaws—just happy skin and happy Halloween.
1: Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host Emma Newberry coming at you live and voluntarily from a dark basement, very in the Halloween spirit. This week we actually have a part two of a series that we didn't realize we were doing but Noah and I decided that we hadn't quite gone deeply enough into the conspiracy theory of the nation state. So he will be gracing us with his presence again today as we break down the myth of the nation state, talk a bit more about the theory and the theorists behind that, and then, of course, how it applies to athletics and impacts all forms of protest in today's political climate.
0: sounded like people really just couldn't get enough of what we were talking about. So I Yeah. To back and talk more and about by
1: people, we mean two people.
0: But our, our, And by our, I mean your uh, debate. <laughs> I'm so used to saying our because of our radio show.
1: Well, it is our because this episode is both of us. True. So before we get into the specifics of stuff, I did think it was helpful to summarize some of the main points that we learned from our class. The myth of the nation state, and we have two main thinkers who wrote about this, who are going to give us the basics.
0: Right. So, Go. <laughs> There was this anthropologist named Ernest Gellner uh, mm-hmm. who wrote this piece in 1983 called "Nations and Nationalism," and there was this quote that really stood out to kind of highlight his overall thesis, which was nationalism is primarily a political principle that holds the political and the national unit should be congruent. Basically, Gellner thought that this bringing together of rulers, like the state and the ruled, being the nation, is a modern motivation. Um, the Industrial Revolution led to more specialized labor with each person on like an assembly line. So that means that, for one, there needs to be some kind of comprehensive understanding of what needs to be done a comprehensive understanding of what the goal is, which mm-hmm. is what he, I believe, determined to be cultural standardization. Um, and there also needs to be a reason for the people to achieve that goal or purpose.
1: Right. Because if you're on like an assembly line and you're the guy that like puts one screw in and that's all you do is you do that one screw a million times a day, you need some morale boosting. So there needs to be this idea that you're doing this for a greater purpose right. than you actually are. Yeah. Right.
0: And another thing, too, that plays into that that is kind of seen throughout a lot of pieces of literature that we studied was that there needs to be a uniform modern language. That common language allows people to work together and have that similar goal. So a lot of cultures would use that language as like verbal communication. Other people um, determine it through you know physical acts, um, how people move, how people interact, how people kind of just go about their day and how people work. That kind of plays into that national language.
1: And then there's another writer, Eric Hobsbawm, who wrote a book with the same name, also Nations and Nationalism, but it's a different guy. And he wrote it later in 1990. And he basically has the same definition that you explained that Gellner has, but I thought there were two interesting points that he sort of adds on that are good to know as we go into this. The first is that, just to clarify, he sees... The nation as a construct that is brought into being by nationalism and not the other way around, like chicken-egg scenario. There is no nation before there is nationalism, which necessitates a nation. So a nation is not just a pre-existing thing. It's a product. It's a manufactured product. The second thing is that he believes that nationalism is constructed from above, aka by the state, but... It needs to be studied from below by us because, quote, this is where it takes root and it is most powerful and volatile.
0: It was Philip Abrams that talked a lot about kind of the construction of the state and how Mm -hmm. we are able to, like, like you said, study, but also think of the state. So in order to talk about the state or the state ideology, we must first acknowledge that there is a state. So like we must first acknowledge that there is this governing body that rules us. But at the same time, the state idea and the state system are two separate ideas that play into the entity that is the state. So like, right. the state idea is something that isn't actually physical. The state idea is the idea that there is a state that rules over us, dominates us, influences our political ideologies. That's the state idea. Those ideas are instilled in us through state institutions. So whether mm-hmm. that be bureaucratic practices, schools, prisons, that there, there are these physical institutions that effectively take the state ideology and then use that ideology to create obedience, create order, mm-hmm. physical force, violence, all of these different things that build up into this state idea and this obedience of this state being.
1: I remember a professor may use an example of like, we all agree to go to the DMV and take a number and sit there until someone calls our number. We could, if we really wanted to walk up to the window, even if it was not our turn, but there's a structure that has been created with an ideology inside it that's instilled within us that makes us do these certain things that like, it's kind of ridiculous, but that is understood to be what you do, to be a good citizen. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sure that you want to talk a little bit about your favorite thing, the panopticon. Would you care to give our audience a little taste of what that is?
0: Yes. I think it's just the saying the word panopticon was like kind of fun for me. Even though it's like not a very fun concept at all, it's more just like it was a fun... It's kind
1: thing. of a terrifying, yeah. <laughs> it,
0: is, it is terrifying. Um, and I say that with like a smile on my face just because it's... Because we're
1: uncomfy, but it's yeah.
0: okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. <laughs> So the Panopticon, it was an idea that was really talked mostly about by an English philosopher, um, Jeremy Bentham, I believe it was. Uh, He's the
1: one that came up with it.
0: Yeah, so he came up with the concept, but it's a concept that actually is used. The idea is that there is this one central tower that can see into every prison cell. Um, it's essentially, you know, a lighthouse looking tower in the center of a circular prison. It's in the center of the courtyard and the windows were, would be tinted or you wouldn't be able to see inside of the central tower. But the concept is, is that there is someone in that tower that is watching you. And something that Bentham really talked about a lot was that behaviors change when you're being surveyed behaviors change when you think you're being surveyed. And so that the surveillance was something that was really used heavily and still is in state institutions in order to construct the idea of like how we're supposed to behave in everyday society. So for example, in a lot of high schools or government buildings, stuff like that, there are cameras everywhere. You know, people aren't necessarily sitting there looking at those cameras. You know, they're like
1: definitely asleep. Yeah, I mean... They're definitely asleep. <laughs> the
0: town that I grew up in, you know, it was a very safe, sheltered environment. I doubt anyone was ever looking at the security cameras, unless something bad happened, unless someone reported something stolen,
1: Yeah, and
0: they could go back and look, but no one was monitoring your day-to-day interactions in the hallway. You know, no one was looking at me, check my phone in the middle of class, you know... <laughs> Nothing like that, but it's more just the idea that you could be being watched that makes you conform to what is deemed acceptable behavior.
1: The main thing about the Bentham Panopticon was like, you don't even need to have anyone in the tower ever. Because all you need is to make people think that they are constantly being watched. So like the idea of the nation state, the nation is not a real thing. It doesn't have to be real. It's just an idea that makes people behave in a certain way so that you don't actually have to pull the strings. You're just sitting there and like watching the puppets do it themselves, which is really creepy.
0: Incredibly creepy, but incredibly effective. And it's something that has kind of shaped how everyone in America behaves or everyone in you know each nation state behaves. That's where the dominance and the values and tactics are ingrained in you from such a young yeah. age. So, kind of going off of what Hobbsbaum said with studying things from below, the way that I really kind of internalized a lot of what we were learning in our class was looking at something that was really near and dear to me, which is sports. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing that came to my head because we took this class in 2017, I believe. Um, yeah was the Colin Kaepernick protests, you know, not just NFL protests, but protests happening in sports as a result of a lot of police brutality coming to light. There were a lot of like really interesting parallels and it was really easy to kind of see how Hobsbawm's ideas came into play.
1: Absolutely. And so we thought today it would be helpful to take a look at a series of examples and we're going to start with sort of a timeline of how the national anthem came to be played at sporting events and came to have the cultural clout that it has now. It was first played ever at a sporting game on May 15th, 1862 in Brooklyn, where I'm from, which was at the inaugural game at the Union Grounds Baseball Park in Williamsburg. They would play it as like part of a rotation of normal songs that they played and nobody really paid attention to it. It was just kind of background. But then in 1918, game one of the World Series, Chicago Cubs versus Boston Red Sox. It was played during seventh inning stretch. I don't really know what that means. Maybe that's an important time in the game. What is the seventh inning stretch?
0: So the seventh inning stretch (laughs) during every baseball game? I believe it's after the first half of the seventh inning, with the time that's designated for the fans to get up, stretch, and then settle in for the last couple innings of baseball. So
1: it's like literally stretch.
0: It's literally like. um, I thought it was
1: like stretch of time, but it's like stretch.
0: Which is like a time for everyone to kind of like relax for a second before
1: the the innings of baseball, yeah. Okay, so this happened during a break. Now I know that. Um, Everyone took off their hats, you know, we're being respectful, but there was one Red Sox infielder, Fred Thomas, who was actually on furlough from the Navy specifically to play in the World Series, who, when the national anthem was being played, he was the first person to turn to the flag that was hanging in the stadium and salute it. And everyone kind of looked at him like, what? What? Keep in mind, this is before The Star-Spangled Banner was even the U.S. national anthem. So it's just a song. It's not really a song that people think about in any sort of special way. But it was one of those things where he's really confidently doing something. So that's probably the right thing to do. And oh, no, I'm not doing it. So I should probably also do it. And that made everybody in the stands who are already standing up sort of, you know, straighten up and like notice like, oh, this is something different. Like this is a big deal. And they actually started singing along to the national anthem, which had never happened before. And the New York Times, who covered this in 1918, called it, quote, the highest point of the day's enthusiasm. The bar is pretty low for enthusiasm in America <laughs> in 1918, because, one, we had entered World War I a year and a half ago, and at that point, there had been over 100,000 U.S. soldier deaths. Two, the day before the game in Chicago... Someone threw a bomb into the Chicago Federal Building and killed four people. And this was before mail bombings were really a thing. So this was like very jarring. Three, the U.S. government had just announced that this season would be cut short and that MLB players would be drafted, which was not previously the case. So morale was like in the ground. And Fred Thomas, I don't know if it was like habit or like he felt something specific, at that game, but he decides to salute the flag. After this game, it began to be played more and more at games, and especially as all these wounded guys, veterans who were coming home, would get complimentary tickets to Red Sox games, and then they would play the song, and it was very explicitly to honor those men who were at that specific game. But naturally, the owners of various teams figured out pretty quickly that more people would come if it was more of a spectacle and they would get more butts in seats and more money. So there was really a push from team owners like Harry Frazee, who was the Sox owner, and the NFL commissioner Elmer Layden to have it played. At the end of World War II, this had become such a cultural milestone for people and a time for them to come together doing a period of real strife, which is like fair.
0: I think that that right there, and I know that this is something that we talked about a lot on the last time we had the podcast, was the lack of ability to separate nationalism and your own identity with sport and how watching sports as much as people would like it to be an escape, a time to relax, a time to get away and enjoy what's on TV. I mean, from this point on, the, the notions of nationalism and patriotism and Unity and all these other things that are technically not part of this game itself, not part of the sport, are brought in.
1: And that becomes really clear also because almost immediately after the Star Spangled Banner was introduced as this sort of like thing that we always do, people started getting picky and kind of like pissed off when people wouldn't respond to it correctly. The History Channel had an article about this where they said, the anthem's adoption also gave way to a new American pastime almost as beloved as sports itself, complaining about people's behavior during the national anthem. And people were getting mad that people were talking over it, people weren't standing, people, you know, if it's during the stretch period, it's like people are going to do the, like, 20th century equivalent of check their phones. It's not necessarily gonna be like well like better stand to attention while i'm like drunk at this game trying to right. enjoy myself right. um and it got so bad that in 54 the baltimore orioles manager arthur ellers was just like i don't want to do this anymore this is distracting it's not a good idea like there's no purpose and there was so much public pressure that he had to reinstate it a month later because people were so mad that they had taken it out because it was seen as this affront to like the nation. So that's when you really see it starting to become like this. Oh, wow. Okay. Like the people are really taking this seriously.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the authors, Mitchell, something that he mentioned a lot was the power in exact timing and the coordination of movement. And I think that that, that plays really well into the national anthem too. In that, like you were saying, if you're not, Unified in what you do. If you're not standing, you know, hand over chest, hat off, you know, if you're on your phone, like, that takes away from the power and the magnitude of what's going on. Power that comes from a national identity, a uniform and unified nationalism. The act of not putting your hand over your heart and taking your cap off, you know, if you're doing something else, that takes away from the power of the movement.
1: Right. And that's like something that I don't think we think about in association with America. Like we normally associate robotic movements, movement in sync with dictatorships, especially after World War II, everyone was really afraid that there was just this some inherent evil in everyone because normal, quote unquote, normal people had fallen susceptible to fascism and we had set off two atomic bombs and killed so many people. And there was just this sense that like, humanity was in decline i remember in class we watched triumph of the will which is that nazi propaganda movie where they're all marching in like terrifyingly straight lines and like making all these turns or like it's like a human swastika and stuff or you can think about today um, during celebrations in north korea the movements of the dancers are executed so perfectly because like they will literally be punished by the government if they mess up we have that too, obviously not to the same degree, but it's this kind of like cultural shunning of like, you're not doing it like we do it. So what are you saying? Are you not like us? Right. I feel like it's sort of the the vibe of that. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I think that that kind of plays into with everything that we talked about, about Colin Kaepernick. It's, the, it's why so many people took offense to kneeling or even like what is considered a form of respect in other senses why it's considered not respectful during the national anthem to so many people is just because it's different and it draws right. it draws away from the unified power of that movement of everyone being in the exact same moment focusing on the exact same thing doing the exact same thing at the same time
1: yeah there is a visual disruption you're totally right that really Shakes people and it makes them upset, and I feel like we don't really think about why. Well, I know that neither of us are really upset by that, but people don't think about why they are upset. It's just like easier to say, like this is an affront to our nation and my idea of what it means to be an American. And if anyone was like, "Well, what is that idea? What do you think it is?" I think they would be hard pressed to immediately give Mm
0: -hmm.
1: an answer. That's something that Kaepernick was going against.
0: I don't know. And that also plays into the the idea that we studied that in order for there to be a sense of nationhood, there needs to be some external being. There's people right. on the inside. There's people on the outside, and doing that that protest or um, not reacting the exact same way that's the rec- that's in turn the recognition of an exterior of someone that's yeah, part of point. The, the inside of your national bubble,
1: right. And in some ways, that threatens the national bubble, but it's also what keeps it going because you have to be reminded that, like, oh, there is someone who's not like us, like Kaepernick. He was trying to make a statement, but he's not like the face of dissidents in America.
0: And that's why it became such an issue for some people because there is someone who, this figure in American sports, which, I mean, football is the sport in America, it's the most watched sport in America. I mean, it's the most popular. Yes. Well, no, I'm, I'm not gonna <laughs> say, But well, it's the most popular sport in America. And the idea that someone who you believed was inside of your group would consider themselves outsiders both strengthens and weakens in some weird concept than yep. idea of like the nation state. Yeah. Some weird way, it's like people take that as a hit to themselves, but at the same time rally around the fact that, oh, there's this outsider lets all of us insiders get stronger together and right. talk about how much we can't stand this outsider for doing this. Exactly. And that's kind of where we see such a division today because people who are able to separate what Colin Kaepernick was doing from an act of nationalism to drawing attention to what it actually is, which is a stance against police brutality... That's kind of the division that we see in terms of people viewing that as a positive act and something that he should be allowed to do versus something that is you know not okay and
1: socially unacceptable. right. And I think the thing with Kaepernick that nobody, and by nobody, I mean like people who take issue with this nobody really wants to acknowledge is that the nation isn't built for him to be inside it as a black man. There's just like inevitably this racial component. And we talked about this a little bit last time, but the idea that's like run your play and be good at what you do and keep your mouth shut. Like it strengthens the nation in a sense of, nationalism but it also points out like there's something wrong here when he's seen as like going against the nation the nation is never questioned as like whether it was going against him or like not meant ever to include him
0: do you want to talk a little bit about how this i know you really wanted to talk about this uh transubstantiation i don't know how to pronounce it you go ahead
1: yeah transubstantiation weird word but I think, given that we are sort of talking about sports slash nationalism as a religion, it kind of fits. In Catholicism, you know how when you take communion, they give you the cracker and they say, this is the body of Christ, and then they give you the cup and they say, this is the blood of Christ. So before those items are consecrated, blessed by the priest, it's just a bowl of crackers and a cup of wine. But if you are really religious, in Catholic belief, Protestants don't have this, but in Catholic belief, you actually believe that the blessing has made the cracker into the literal body of Christ and the the wine literally becomes his blood. Like there's a, there's a swap. It's sort of like a swap. And so it's just this understanding of and acceptance of one thing standing in for something else with the something else being... A more powerful thing. Like this cracker is God's son. Those are a totally different scale. And I think you could make the argument, and obviously I'm doing that now, that the flag has become that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's become this thing that, that people view as more than a piece of cloth. They, right. A lot so many people associate this flag with being the identity of the country, because the state has no physical form. And I think that the, the flag kind of plays into like the nation and the state and the concept that doesn't have a physical piece to it. Sure, there are state structures, but in those state structures, we look to this flag to represent a lot of the things that we can't put a physical body to.
1: Right. Absolutely. I was thinking as you were talking about one of the most iconic images in American history, which is raising the flag on Iwo Jima. During the Battle of Iwo Jima, six Marines mounted the U.S. flag on top of a mountain. In terms of how that was received at home, that was like, America has triumphed because this piece of fabric is still standing even though these however many men aren't. And this is another one of those things. Talk about people who are excluded from the benefits of the nation. Like, when veterans come back home, there is very little infrastructure built into our country that like helps them assimilate back into society and like especially with vietnam war veterans iraq war veterans like people come back with serious mental health issues serious physical disabilities and after they are done serving their symbolic purpose it's sort of just like "Eh, whatever like you can be homeless right you're not important i just want to clarify that we are not going against the people who fight in the U S army were just pointing out ideologically some sort of inconsistent things about it.
0: One of my grandfathers fought in Vietnam and the other fought in the Korean war. I mm-hmm. I'm from a line of military men. Um, yeah. And I have great admiration for everything that they did fighting for this country and nothing that we have said here is necessarily against them. It's more just pushing back on the idea of, What we're fighting for.
1: Right, because the people who are saying what we're supposed to fight for are never the people that they actually send over there. It's always like, how can we weaponize rhetoric to get poor people and people of color, often disproportionately, to go and fight for us? And what can we tell them to convince them that it's worth it to die? That's more what we're criticizing.
0: Something really interesting that plays into what you were just saying in terms of getting people to join the military. Is the fact that the military pays the NFL? What? So tell me. Um, according to NJ.com, I don't know how trustworthy that source. <laughs> um, the Department of Defense had paid, quote, at least six million in taxpayer money to the NFL. A lot of this money goes to the promotion and kind of marketing of the national anthem. The breakdown isn't necessarily made entirely public, but every year the NFL celebrates Salute to Service and they have Blue Angels fly over sporting events. And I think that this adds a level of power in some sense.
1: I was going to say sliminess, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, slimy could be a word that's, that's used, but
1: you use your word. I just It's
0: essentially it's marketing. The national anthem and the soldiers and seeing soldiers family members and the players interacting with the soldiers and how much respect that the players have for the soldiers. The flyovers, you know, all these things that are shown to really magnify the benefits of the military yep. domestically are highlighted.
1: I will say because I want this podcast to be accurate that there was a congressional investigation into what they call paid patriotism, which I think is a really interesting phrase, right before the Kaepernick protest. So they actually stopped. They don't do it anymore, but they did it for a really long time, and that was really recent that they stopped. Got it. So your point still holds. I just don't want us to be lying, you know.
0: Of course. I don't think it's fair for us to, one way or the other, say that something is also really bad or not, because it's people. Yeah, that's true personal identities. And I think the more you learn about it, the more convoluted the sense of nationalism or like this state gets in your head and you kind of question more things.
1: Right. And I've been saying this a lot recently because I always end up having these kind of conversations with my friend, Emily. She has often said, um, if you love something, you should be even more open to thinking about it critically, which is not the same thing as criticizing it. It's just you take it seriously enough to interrogate why you think the way you do, which is what we're doing, too. I mean, I didn't think about any of this before we took our class, and then our brains exploded like tiny grapes, <laughs> and it was crazy.
0: <laughs> our, our professor performed grape surgery on our brain.
1: Thank you, Professor May, for the great grape surgery. Yes. Just to touch on the flag a little bit more... Um, I went on the US Department of Veteran Affairs website and I remembered this because my grandfather served in World War II. So when he died, we got a burial flag. And the application to qualify for a burial flag is like the tiniest font ever, really hard to read, requires so much information. I was like, this is the SAT. It was so much given like everything that that person has sacrificed. And if they've passed away, like, come on just like give them the flag but like you were talking about that's the kind of system instills in you like this is important enough that you have to fill out this many forms and send it into the gaping maw of american bureaucracy probably never to be seen again and stamped by someone who like hates their life but anyway i also thought it was interesting the most frequently asked questions like some of them are just like people are worried about this like Can a burial flag be replaced? How should the burial flag be displayed? What if more than one family member wants a flag? Who can complete the flag application? If we were given a, quote, defective flag, what do we do? do do? You can't just throw it out. You have to mail it back to the Department of Veteran Affairs and they will send you a new one, but you can't dispose of it. If the flag's so sacrosanct, then why are we letting people like Trump fly the thin blue line flag, which is like, a ripoff of the American flag. I don't know. The rules seem to only cut one way. It's convenient.
0: It adds on to the concept that we're talking of, of the flag being this sacred entity um, that actually our laws now prohibit the flag to be burned. There are laws in this nation to protect it.
1: And that gets to what we were talking about before too. Like if you elevate the flag to the level of importance that you have laws... Governing its like safety. You're saying that it's a very important and strong symbol, but you're also saying that it's fragile enough that the smallest act of desecration will like threaten the entire structure. So it's an interesting admission of like, this is a created system, and like, please don't do this because it will fall if too many people realize they can do this. I am not particularly patriotic in this conversation, it's become clear. I have like serious issues with the American government, but I personally, like, I don't know. I just wouldn't feel right burning an American flag. Like something inside of me would be like, you're not supposed to do that.
0: Right. But why is that?
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's the system in my head.
0: Yes. But that is the point of what we're trying to talk about in the whole purpose of this conversation. It's that. The reason that we have such strong connections with this piece of cloth is because of the national identity that has been built up over the years by the mm-hmm. state, by the idea that whatever the state mandates is the law. There, there are countless forms of obedience that make us believe in certain things about our okay. country that they are the way they are. Like, we talked a little bit last time about the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, like it's always a sporting event. You you stand for the national anthem like that. Those are things that are just ingrained in you from such a young age. It's impossible to fully grasp the concept of what all happens behind the scenes of the state and how the state really became just this baffling thing that we all kind of mindlessly follow.
1: I feel like recent events have have just like shown. I don't know. I feel like white America has just been like, oh, what? Like, it's such a an vital and such a rude awakening. It's it's interesting to see people become aware of the simulation that they're in. I sound like I'm insane, but you know what I mean, right? Absolutely. Okay.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, I feel like I'm wearing like a tinfoil hat and like talking <laughs> to aliens. This is a simulation.
0: No, I, I totally get what you mean. I think... You know that's very true, and you you've seen it a lot through social media, especially. Um, yeah, people having this cultural awakening, and I think that because of the way that the system is set up, and by the system I mean everything in America is set up for white men to succeed. You know, it it's taken some pretty unbelievable acts for. People to really start to understand what is really happening. You know, people are starting to think more and more about what they learned in elementary school and middle school about US history. Um, mm-hmm. The stories that were told, the songs that we learn, the uh, practices that we have, the, the different forms of obedience that we learn through all the bureaucratic and state institutions that we grew up being a part of.
1: Yeah. Like you said, how were the stories told? Who was telling the stories? You pledge allegiance to the flag. Why? What is the flag? What does that mean? If the police protect and serve, who are they really protecting and serving? It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. And, like, the whole thing we're talking about with uniformity is, like, people really want it to be that. And they really just want to say, like, everyone fits. It's fine. Let's just stay in our lanes. And, like, nah. Got to blow up the lanes.
0: Mic drop. That's a great way to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily think that what this conversation is is highlighting all of the negative things. I think we're just trying to explain kind of why some things are the way that they are. And not by mm-hmm. any, not by any means, are we experts on any of the subjects that we have covered today. Oh my god, no! Um, but I think at least having the conversation opens your eyes to parts of it, which then open your eyes to the next thing and the next thing. And each bit of information allows you to just question more and more, which is uncomfortable, but it's
1: what we need. You have to start interrogating the constructed reality around you and how you benefit from it and what you can do to change that.
0: It's really funny to sit down and have a conversation with your parents about nationalism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that. I believe a lot of the same things that my parents do and think the same way that they do. But it was fascinating to have a conversation with them about what we learned in our class. I don't know how often that generation had these conversations. I don't know how often the generation before them had these conversations. It really questions how everything from a state institutional level and the way that we're supposed to act and behave, where that started. And how it came about. And it's just, I would encourage everyone that listens to this to go and have a conversation with their parents about what nationalism means to them. What they think that the state is. If you challenge that idea, I think it's a really interesting discussion to have.
1: Our parents grew up with parents who knew people or did serve in World War War II, which was like really... The codification of national ideals and like this idea of America as a nation. So I think we're lucky that we've been raised to be more skeptical of it. Speaking of skepticism, there was just one thing that I thought was weird, which was that this musicologist at the University of Michigan basically, what's his name? Mark Clegg. he basically argued that the reason that the national anthem became so popular with sports is because it is an athletic feat to reach the high notes in the song. Like he said, quote, the incredible leap it takes to pull in a touchdown catch, which is like, is that how you describe sports? Um, <laughs> or grab like a,
0: like a true sportsman,
1: <laughs> spoken like a true nerd or grab a grounder or turn a double play has a kind of analog to those high notes in the Star Spangled Banner. Like, okay, acapella, calm down.
0: And I think that that is the difference between musicologists and people that study... lead totally normal
1: lives.
0: Anthropologists and sociologists, uh, and also the way that you said those sports terms made me laugh. You know what a double play is?
1: No. I literally asked you what the seventh inning was. Like, I don't know.
0: I think you're... No, so double play is also a baseball time. You're just struggling with baseball.
1: Touchdown, I know. Yep, and grounder, I know.
0: A grounder is also baseball.
1: Yes, I know that, though.
0: You know what a grand slam is?
1: Yes, I do. Isn't it when um, they hit a home run and then, like, everybody gets to go all the way around who were on bases?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. I would really love for you to one time throw a ball at me and I try to catch it. I feel like that'd be great PR for this.
0: I think that that would be, that would actually be hilarious if that was like the clip for our second and most likely <laughs> final conversation on sports. Watch Emma catch this ball.
1: I feel like, I feel good about this. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Kenny Noel, Dan Valu no one Nelson in of course. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the all-alone pod or email us at the all at gmail.com.